electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange today. Here's what's ahead. Fund managers are underweight cash for the first time since 2013. And Bank of America says that's triggering their sell signal. We'll look to history to see whether you should follow their advice. Plus, as we close out a tough year for the restaurant industry, we speak with the CEO of Burger King and Popeye's parent, Restaurant Brands International. Is Congress doing enough to help? We'll ask. And strict limits on shippers, 30% more iPhones, Nirvana for Carvana, and Georgia on everybody's mind. It's all coming up this hour, but let's start with the markets, and Seema Modi has more for us. Hi, Seema. Good afternoon, Kelly. Three hours left in trade, and stocks are holding on to gains right now. Session highs to start the hour, the Dow notching another record high, and that said... We should take into account that all three averages are still negative over the past week. One big gainer today is Apple, up more than 4% on the heels of this Nikkei report, that the company is planning a 30% year-over-year increase in iPhone production uh, during the first half of next year. Also, would just point out the year-to-date performance of the stock. You can see it just had a big run, up 72%. Let's also get a check on the electric vehicle and clean energy space. Some big moves there, rebounding after a long period of selling off. One notable lagger today is Tesla down about 1%, so falling a bit further from its record high that it hit last week. And also focusing in on NEO. That's another one of those clean energy players. Uh, the stock is now up more than 950% this year and has the highest 30-day average volume of any stock on the New York Stock Exchange right now. Kelly, back to you. Wait, Tesla can go down? Seema? I know. I Who said not all stocks can go forever. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Seema, we appreciate, of course, a very big day for Tesla looming on Friday. Meanwhile, as the rollout of Pfizer's vaccine continues, Moderna taking a step closer towards getting its own green light for emergency use of its vaccine today. Meg Terrell joins me now with the very latest on those efforts. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, this morning we got the FDA's briefing documents on Moderna's vaccine. We are now going through the same process with Moderna that we went through last week with Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine. Uh, Overall, the FDA saying that the efficacy, of course, is strong at 95 percent of Moderna's vaccine and protecting against uh, COVID-19 disease. Um, Also detailing the safety of the vaccine, things like injection site reactions, fatigue, headache, uh, muscle and joint pain, uh, known as reactogenicity, uh, chills, uh, people see after these shots. Rare events they're looking at include swelling in the vaccination arm, as well as something called Bell's palsy, which is essentially a temporary paralysis or seizing up of the face, where they saw three cases on vaccine and one on placebo. Not clear if that's related to the vaccine, but something they're looking at with Pfizer's shot as well. Importantly, no allergic reactions that they saw here in the data, as that is something that's being looked at uh, with the Pfizer vaccine. And that will be a key topic of conversation this week. On the efficacy, we also got to see this great graph showing protection even after the first dose. Really at day 14, two weeks after you get the first shot, protection does start to set in. You can see there the blue line are people on the vaccine and the orange on placebo, major protection from disease. Another really cool thing we saw this morning is early but suggests that the Moderna vaccine can protect against 
uh, infection with the virus completely, which could potentially stop this virus from being transmitted. Um, we have only seen really early data after the first shot, but showing essentially that two-thirds uh, fewer swabs uh, to look for this virus were seen in the vaccine group uh, versus the placebo group once people went back to get their second dose, suggesting that some asymptomatic infections start to be prevented after the first dose. So, Kelly, that's very early, but that would be important for reaching herd immunity uh, if it bears out in further data. So, finally... On Thursday, we are going to see that outside committee of advisors from the FDA meet, take their vote. Uh, the New York Times is reporting emergency use authorization is expected to come on Friday from the FDA. And that will kick off this new shipment of vaccine doses going out next week. Six million from Moderna to more than 3,000 locations around the U.S., Kelly. Yeah, and that's on the vaccine front. Meg, we also got some breaking news on the treatment front in the past hour. It's on the underutilization of some of these drugs from Regeneron and Eli Lilly. Yeah, I, I just spoke with Monsef Slawi, the chief advisor to Operation Warp Speed, and, and I was shocked by this. He told me they'd just seen new data on the usage of these antibody drugs, and they're only getting used at 5 to 20 percent of the supply that's being provided each week. About 65,000 doses of these antibody drugs go out each week from uh, Regeneron and Eli Lilly. And Slawi telling me essentially there are a few complicating factors here. These drugs need to be used early before people feel very sick. Uh, so people who are at high risk of getting severe disease, both they and their doctors need to know about these medicines and, and reach for them as a potential tool. But he also notes it's very complicated to administer these. They're given by IV, and these are patients who have COVID, so they can't just walk into a hospital and, and get these drugs. So um, states and local health departments, you know, kind of struggling with being able to set this up and administer these drugs. But Kelly, he said they could cut down on hospitalizations by 50 to 70 percent if they're used. So they could be very useful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Meg, I also want to share this email I got from our, our viewer, Shyam, today. He says, can you please recognize Meg Terrell for her many fine reports on the coronavirus pandemic? She's been the go-to person all year and is the best reporter on this subject on all of cable TV. He says, I only found out yesterday from her tweets that she often starts her day at 6 a.m. I also know she's on the job during the 7 p.m. hour. I've seen her on Shep's show. That's a long 14-hour day. If possible and appropriate, <laughs> you can forward this email to her supervisor and other higher-ups, too. They need to know that loyal CNBC viewers appreciate her hard work and excellent reporting. So I figured I'd do them one better and just read it out on air for you. That's really nice. <laughs> well, you guys make the 14-hour days feel <laughs> short. So <laughs> thank you, Kelly. That's, that's no, so nice. No, you are the best. You are a rock star. It's been a big year. Meg, thank you so much. Let's turn back to the markets now where stocks are higher with the S&P on pace to break its longest losing streak in th uh, three months. Wow. Uh, Bank of America, though, is warning that this market is flashing a sell signal because investors, they say, are going all in. According to their December Global Fund Manager survey, the cash levels in a typical portfolio have dropped to just 4%. That's the first underweight cash position in seven years. Where's that cash going? Well, according to B of A, the most crowded trades right now are long tech, short the dollar, and long Bitcoin. So are my next guests in those trades and positions. Let's bring in Marco Papich. He's chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. And Jeff Krumpelman is chief investment strategist with Mariner Wealth Advisors. It's good to have you guys here. Marco, first of all, um, are you positioned like, I guess, everybody else on the planet? And how much stock do you put into these surveys as a contrarian indicator? Well, I think uh, how I'm positioned is less relevant than how are the institutional investors that we speak to uh, positioned. And I would say 
the one caveat on that view, which I think is overall correct, like there is euphoria clearly in the markets, it's just that a lot of institutional investors, a lot of the real money out there, um, didn't really believe this rally from the beginning to now. And so the only caution I would throw to it is that a lot of cash is still on the sidelines uh, in institutional uh, in institutional sort of pools of capital. And uh, they are definitely long tech, but there is this vicious rotation into cyclicals uh, that is, first of all, occurring already and could have a lot more room to go. So is BOA correct to say that there's a sell signal in the near term? Like tactically? Sure. Maybe. But that could be actually this rotation into cyclicals and, uh, uh, you know, more uh, value uh, driven assets. And Jeff, we've seen that kind of play out since September. I mean, we had markets looking pretty extreme back then. And the kind of pullback that we got was one that really was more focused on big tech and some of those names, uh, while the other trades like energy have been absolutely taking off. So um, how does your positioning stack up uh, relative to the rest of this fund manager universe? Well, you know, whenever we look at the market, we look at three things. We look at the fundamentals, we look at valuation levels, and we look at technicals. And actually, I think all three line up pretty well for a nice cocktail or, you know, champagne kind of toast as we move into the year. Short term, we might be a little overbought. We talk about sentiment. So short term, you know, we look a little overbought after a 65% run. But actually, if you look at the fundamentals and, and you see the pent-up demand and the way the economy and earnings have recovered, and should continue to recover in sustained fashion after introduction of a vaccine, I think the fundamentals line up pretty well after we push through maybe a bit of a pause in Q1. Valuation at 20 times when you've got rates somewhere around, you know, less than 1% on the 10-year, and then leadership in some of these uh, higher beta areas that we see, it, it doesn't suggest that people are scared, you are going to run to defensives and that type of thing. So I think this has legs, albeit we could have a correction at any moment just because we're, we're short-term overbought and there are a couple of wall worry items. But longer term, we're looking for close to double-digit returns in 2021 for the market, and I would be balanced between growth and value, and I would not just run the old economy because they don't have the catalysts that some of these growth stocks do. And you can get that not just with FANG but yeah. with others. So, Marco, finally, I just want to kind of circle back to the some of the facts here from the, the B of A survey. I mean, we are getting pretty extreme in this positioning. And I just wonder if it doesn't set off more alarm bells for you. Again, it doesn't have to be disaster, but just in the sense that, OK, maybe that we're, since we're all expecting a repeat of the September kind of rotation sell off. Well, what happens if all of a sudden it is different this time and we are coming you know, we, you turn the calendar to 2021, people are coming off a 40% year for the NASDAQ, a 70% year for Apple and some of these other parts of the market. And what if there is a bigger pullback? I mean, that wouldn't, everybody would be caught flat-footed by that, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And I think uh, what we have to just think about are what are the catalysts for that sort of a, a pullback? I mean, as Meg uh, reported, and I agree with you, extraordinary reporting, very clear, I mean, we have great uh, news on the vaccine front. I mean, really extraordinary news. We could have this disease eradicated by the end of 2021. So the COVID front, which BOA lists as one of the you know, risks, uh, I think it's, it's going to dissipate pretty clearly. The only thing that could catalyze a deeper pullback is some sort of a policy error. And really the only place that could happen, I think at this point, given the extreme dovishness in the developed world, would be China. You know, if Chinese policymakers, as we talked, I think last month, uh, decided to deleverage 
uh, into 2021. That doesn't seem to be something to really worry about in the first half. Uh, it's more of a later 2021 story. And and as such, any pullback uh, will simply elicit the, you know, buy and dip mentality, where I think the cyclicals will outperform defensives going forward. All right. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Marco Papich and Jeff Krumpelman on the markets today. Uh, we appreciate it very much. At 4 p.m., congressional leaders from both parties are meeting on COVID relief as the bill has now been broken into two pieces as lawmakers try a new tactic to advance it. Earlier on Squawk Box, drumroll please, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon said small businesses urgently need help with capital and liquidity. I'm quite optimistic about what we're seeing with respect to the vaccine, and we will get through this. But at the moment, while you can see the finish line, I think a lot of these small businesses need help getting across the, the finish line. And that's what we're hearing directly from them. Well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is also painting a bleak picture of Main Street in its latest small business report. Three quarters of small business owners say they need more government assistance to weather the storm. On that note, joining me now is Neil Bradley. He is executive vice president and chief policy officer at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Neil, it's good to have you back. Uh, do you think we're getting close here? I mean, all is this going to fall into place? Uh, is it too late? Is it going to come just in time? What do you think? Well, it should have been done months ago, frankly, uh, but there's it's never too late to do the right thing, as my mother used to tell me, um, and it's urgently needed. So we're very optimistic about this meeting that's supposed to take place at 4 p.m. this afternoon between Speaker Pelosi, Leader McConnell, Schumer, uh, and McCarthy uh, to stitch together this deal that hopefully can be enacted uh, before the end of the week or at the latest, the very beginning of next week. Um, our latest survey data on small business indicates that if for some reason they were to fail to get a deal, that this were to kick into the into next year, we would lose tens of thousands of small businesses while Washington squabbles. Yeah, let's talk about the restaurants for one moment, because, you know, we're going to speak with uh, RBI in a couple of minutes, but they're one of the chains. They own Burger King. They own, you know, Popeyes and that sort of thing. But for the mom and pop restaurants that have been closing uh, across the country, there is there's another round of PPP relief that is in this bill, three hundred billion dollars worth, but it's not uh, targeted. You know, they're going to have to to fight with everybody else for a piece of that. A lot of them don't have great existing banking relationships and that kind of thing. Um, you know, how do we make sure this money gets where it's most needed? Well, I do think they've made some improvements on the second round of PPP over the initial program, in part because we've learned and in part because the circumstances that we face today are different than what we faced in the spring. So they are targeting the second draw PPP to those businesses who have continuing revenue decline compared to the prior year. So it's not going to be available to everyone. Um, they are uh, limiting uh, the number of employees that are eligible if you have uh, that you're eligible uh, to get a PPP loan. They're also expanding how you can use the money and particularly for minority and black owned businesses, they're setting aside some of the money to be targeted through avenues that are most likely to reach them. When we look at our data, we, we show that about 9%, one in 10 small businesses say that under current conditions, they'll close permanently in less than three months, 27% say yeah. three to six months. So th there's enough here that we think can target where the need exists, that those 10% of businesses uh, that won't make it without additional action. 
Real quickly, the PPP funds are still aimed towards the smallest businesses. Is that right? I mean, the Fed's Main Street lending program was supposed to pick up the slack for a lot of those larger middle-sized companies, and it's effectively being wound down with very little to show for itself. So what happens to everybody else? Yeah, that's right. This will continue to be targeted to the smallest businesses. Um, you know, the uh, you're right. Uh, unfortunately, the Main Street programs uh, facilities are being wound down. We would have liked to have kept them as a backstop uh, for the economy heading forward. And so we're going to have to pay really close attention to those mid-market companies uh, and where they fare. There is good news for airlines in this package, additional relief package for them, like we saw in the original CARES Act. Uh, but but we're mindful of what's happening in the rest of the economy as well. Yeah. All right, Neil, thanks for your time today. Uh, we'll follow with interest what happens this afternoon and the rest of the week. Neil Bradley with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Coming up here on The Exchange. Georgia is on everybody's mind. Volver, uh, voters have started getting to the polls with the control of the Senate at stake. We're going to look at the money behind one of the most expensive Senate races in history. Plus, managing the surge, FedEx and UPS are placing strict limits on shippers to meet the holiday rush. The details and who that hurts the most ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Who will rule the Senate? All comes down to who will win the runoff races in Georgia on January 5th. And as we get closer to that date, money and political heavyweights are pouring into the state, including President-elect Joe Biden himself today. Kayla Tausche has the latest for us. Hi, Kayla. Hey, Kelly, the Georgia Senate races are on track to become the two most expensive Senate races in history as the party uh, is sending top billing in past presidents and vice presidents and funds associated with party leaders are lining up their fundraising firepower but behind each of these candidates. Uh, since the November election, Democrats have outraised Republicans nearly two to one on the main online vehicles, Win Red and Act Blue. John Ossoff has raised $55 million to Senator David Perdue's $29 million. And Reverend Raphael Warnock has raised $57 million to Senator Kelly Leffler's $27 million. However, the candidates in each of these races are nearly even in spending according to ad impact when you factor in all of the outside money coming from leadership PACs associated with the Republican and Democratic parties. Now, Democrats winning both of these seats in Georgia would provide a deadlock in the Senate, a 50-50 composition there. But you would get a tiebreaker in Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. But you have corporate entities like the American Banking Association who are buying ads for the Republican candidates because they want to safeguard that light regulatory touch and low taxes. Meanwhile, Democrats and 
unions uh, and those types of groups uh, want that more progressive agenda. We spoke with Mary Kay Henry, who leads the service employees unions. They represent uh, workers from healthcare to hotels. And we asked her about whether these outside national groups should be flooding the zone in states like Georgia and impacting the interests of state voters. Here's what she said. And we have thousands of SEIU members uh, in Georgia and the way our union operates and across the labor movement is when we have a family member in crisis, we rush to have their back. Early voting in Georgia has started this week. The Secretary of State Kelly says it is expected to be a higher turnout than runoffs usually are. Uh, so we will see what sort of numbers the state can command and what actually happens to the balance of power in Congress. You know, Kayla, it might be tough to tell at this point, but is the money all that's pouring in moving the needle? And, and what do the polls show? Well, the polls are pretty much neck and neck, Kelly, and every week there seems to be one that puts uh, the blue candidate ahead or the red candidate ahead. Right now you have Senator Perdue with a half a point lead, according to the Real Clear Politics average, and Reverend Warnock has himself a one point lead, according to uh, the Real Clear Politics average for that race. But those are both uh, far smaller than the margins of error in those races. And as I mentioned, every few days there's a new poll uh, that shows the other candidate leapfrogging. It's going to be a possible to tell before January 5th. Yeah, and it's coming up quick. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with the latest on the Georgia race. Coming up, return to normal or more of the same. We'll speak with the CEO of Burger King and Popeye's parent and restaurant Brands International about what he thinks 2021 will bring. Plus, Apple adding to its monster 2020 gains today on reports that it plans to increase iPhone production by nearly 30 percent. We've got all those details. The shares up 4 percent. And the debate begins on just who is considered an essential worker. We're back after this quick break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. New York City suspending outdoor dining as a snowstorm approaches, and it's just the latest blow to an industry that's been hit so hard in 2020. Kate Rogers is here now with the state of play and the numbers for us. Kate? Hi, Kelly. Well, data from the National Restaurant Association showing just how bad things are, particularly for independent mom and pop restaurants. More than 110,000 are closed in some capacity due to the economy or restrictions. 10,000 of those in the past three months alone. 
Black Box Intelligence reports that same-store sales are down 10.3% for the month of November industry-wide. That is the worst month since August. But fast food companies have really fared better given their drive-through capabilities and on-the-go offerings. Here's a look at some of uh, the top performers in the sector for the year. Here to talk much more about what happened in 2020 and what's ahead is Restaurant Brands International CEO Jose Sill. That's the parent company, as you mentioned, of Burger King, Tim Hortons, and Popeyes. Jose, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Kate, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Great, great to see you. We've got to ask you, what's been your take on the year and changing consumer preferences, and how are you kind of taking those learnings into 2021? What do you think's ahead? Well, look, certainly 2020 was an incredible year. Um, the, the pandemic put, uh, we, we think it put on hyperspeed a lot of uh, trends that were already happening heading into the year. Um, obviously, digital became uh, that much more important, uh, being able to deliver food uh, off-premise, either through delivery uh, or through drive-throughs and, uh, and curbside pickups. So the, there was a, a lot of things that were already in, in motion in, uh, before 2020 that became much more important uh, as the pandemic uh, took hold, as restrictions were put in place, and as people um, started to move less and stayed home much more. Uh, we think we were well-equipped to, to handle that, given all the investments we've made uh, at RBI and with our three uh, brands, Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons, around uh, digital loyalty uh, delivery, uh, as well as investments we're making in the drive-through. So the, the, those are trends that were happening that were accelerated. We also think uh, transparency around food quality, uh, ingredients, uh, responsible packaging. These are things that uh, were on our radar, uh, become much more important for consumers uh, throughout 2020, and, and we think are going to be priorities heading into 2021. And the other piece that I think came out. Uh, strong uh, in 2020 was the importance of of community, uh, the importance of staying close to our guests, uh, close to our team members, close to our communities in which we operate. Uh, we doubled down on that uh, with Tim Hortons, with Burger King, with Popeyes in our home markets as well as internationally, uh, making sure we connected well uh, with uh, with our guests uh, locally, uh, giving back, uh, making sure that, uh, that that people were clear about the purpose of our brands, uh, and making sure that uh, we, they they saw us every day supporting and helping in these difficult times, and we think those those are elements that will be uh, front and center as uh, trusted brands and love brands like ours uh, move forward into 2021. Jose, it's Kelly here, and that's what I wanted to pick up on. You know, this idea that some restaurants right now are investing heavily to reshape the drive-through experience, maybe de-emphasize the dining room experience and uh, have those trends stick around for some time. And obviously, this is a big deal if you need your franchisers to be on board with it. Uh, what's your philosophy there? How different should we continue to expect the restaurant experience with everything from mobile ordering to menu uh, interplay to delivery? Uh, how different should we continue to expect that to look? Well, what's great about the restaurant business um, is, is that we've always been innovating and, and trying to address customer needs and trends. And so delivery uh, has been part of the business for a bit of time, drive-through for you know, more than four decades. Um, and, and now the, the current situation has is, is only accelerated the need for, for investment uh, behind that. We're, we're making a big investment behind uh, drive-through outdoor digital menu boards and the technology behind that to be able to, to do predictive selling and, and uh, all sorts of really uh, advanced uh, ways of interacting and, and giving great experiences to our guests. Our franchisees are making big investments uh, here in the U.S. and Canada, all around the world uh, on the drive-through side of things, as well as in delivery. Uh, we've invested in, uh, in technology teams as well as uh, apps and, uh, and other capabilities to be able to improve the experience uh, for, for delivery. Uh, we now have uh, first-party delivery available 
uh, here in the U.S. and Canada for, for the three brands. We do that as well internationally. And so continued investment uh, to, to provide a much better experience uh, for guests, a much more seamless experience, give them confidence that they can interact with our brands, engage with our brands digitally as well as off-premise, uh, in addition to dine-in uh, in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So all those investments are, are critical to our business uh, long-term, and, and our franchisees understand that or are making the investments alongside uh, us as well, and, uh, and we think those are going to be big parts of the progress we make uh, as a company and our three brands will make uh, over yeah. the coming years. Jose, one quick final question. Your shares have uh, been pretty stagnant over the past three years. Uh, do you need another big acquisition to get investors excited, or do you have a, a, a kind of a, a quick explanation as to how that can turn into the kind of uh, leadership that we've seen from other parts of the fast food space like McDonald's this year? We, we have great uh, three great brands, and our focus is on, uh, on driving growth uh, within those brands. We have also uh, an amazing business that it gives us capabilities to do uh, quite a bit with our capital uh, uh, allocation, and so we've historically uh, had one of the best-in-class dividends. Uh, we've also bought back shares uh, when appropriate, and and uh, we've done some uh, uh, opportunistic M&A with Tim Hortons as well as with Popeye. So I, I think we're well positioned uh, with uh, as a growth mm -hmm. company, uh, given uh, that we're one of the top-growing companies uh, around the globe. We've got the capability. Uh, to expand and grow uh, organically with our three great brands, and that's the focus for us. And, and if something comes along that yeah. makes sense, we'll consider it, but that's the focus for us uh, today. Yeah, understood. Jose, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to have you. Appreciate it very much. Jose Seals, the CEO so of RBI, and a big thank you to our Kate Rogers as well. Speaking of restaurants, don't miss Union Square Hospitality Group's Danny Meyer on Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. for an exclusive interview. I'd be good to get his thoughts on where we stand with the COVID relief bill. Still ahead, a flood of new shares. The lockup expiration is over for Snowflake, and the stock is down sharply over the past week. Is this a warning for names like DoorDash, Airbnb, and Lemonade? That's next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow was up 344 points at the highs today. We're just about 30 points off that level right now. 1% gain. 1% gain for the S&P as well, up 41 points. And the Nasdaq lagging somewhat up eight-tenths of a percent. Uh, take a look at the sectors. You can see that pretty much everybody is positive today. Utilities, materials, and financials are the leadership. Uh, financials and materials up nearly 2%. And here are some of the individual movers. Shares of Baidu are sharply higher on a Reuters report that it is considering making its own electric vehicles. The Chinese company already operates a unit that develops autonomous driving. The shares are up nearly 10%. Shares of Planet Fitness are lower, though, after getting a negative mention in the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. They're saying the pandemic has seriously dented the company's business products. Planet's down three and a half percent. And shares of Etsy hitting an all-time high today. The stock has quadrupled so far in 2020. Four percent of that today at 176. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Just before getting on his plane, heading to Georgia to campaign for the Democratic Senate candidates there, President-elect Biden told reporters He's called Mitch McConnell to thank him for the congratulations offered to him on the Senate floor this morning by the majority leader. Biden says it was a good conversation, and he told McConnell he is confident there are many potential areas for agreement next year. 
The FBI is investigating a shooting on a Washington-area metro train this morning that involved one of its agents. Officials say one gunshot victim was taken to a hospital, but it's not yet known if that person is the FBI agent or not. And for the first time ever, gaseous substances have been taken from outer space back to Earth. A capsule from a Japanese explorer has returned from the asteroid Ryugu, she tried to say, with sand and gas samples, along with what's being called a good amount of black soil. Ryugu, something like that, Kelly. Ryugu? <laughs> something like that, but it's a pretty cool story, so we thought we'd bring it to you. Back to you. I agree. It's worth it. Sue, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. We are all ready to turn the page on 2020, including UBS, the firm out with its 21 most compelling buy-rated investment ideas for 2021. And it's a mix of reopening plays with notable further upside, they say, and some secular winners they think will keep trucking along. The names include Southwest, Morgan Stanley, Dollar Tree, and such 2020 favorites as Amazon and DocuSign. For the full list, head over to cnbc.com pro. Ahead here, FedEx and UPS enforcing strict limits. Apple expects booming demand for iPhones next year, and Carvana picks up even more speed. It's coming up in rapid fire. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are John Fort, Seema Modi, and Bob Bassani. Welcome, everybody. First up, there are just 10 days till Christmas, and as people get their last-minute gifts online, FedEx and UPS are limiting the number of packages they'll pick up from shippers in an effort to deal with this record surge in parcels. So retailers from Nike to L.L. Bean have faced restrictions as carriers try to keep up with the boom in volume. And the strategy seems to be paying off for the most part. According to Ship Matrix, the three biggest carriers had on-time scores of more than 90% in the two weeks around Thanksgiving. And every shipper performed better versus a year ago. Uh, Seema, what do you make of it? I mean, I've already missed the deadlines for some of the places that I wanted to order from. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think whether it's the pandemic, Kelly, the vaccine and now holiday shipping, I mean, these delivery giants are really being tested and it really uh, underscores the need for these companies to continue to invest, uh, whether it's their fleet of ships, their fleet of uh, trucks and fulfillment centers to ensure that they can meet the demand that is coming in. And at some point, you wonder if these retailers will have to find an alternative solution if they can't offer the same shipping speed as their competitors. By the way, Amazon, you haven't heard about a similar price surge that uh, UPS and FedEx are talking about. Yeah. Uh, John, what you know say you? You know what's amazing? You know, it's, go ahead. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, uh, just very quickly, how crazy is this? I mean, look, I, I get, okay, we got record volumes, and I know there's employees that are out because of COVID, so they got a problem there, and you can't get everybody uh, all the stuff on the planes, but when did you ever think you'd hear FedEx and UPS say, you know what, folks? Keep your packages this year. We got too many packages. <laughs> Why don't you hold them out until January? How about grandma's not going to miss a mail in January and do us all a favor and help us out because we can't handle all the work here. When, isn't this crazy? It's, we don't, they can't handle all it, the business. It is. What a year. It is. And, John, I, the only thing about it that makes sense is the fact that everybody's so cooped up. I mean, I, at least for me, I feel like I was working on ordering lists and projects, you know, earlier than I otherwise would have been. Yeah. And, Bob, I didn't realize UPS and FedEx were from Brooklyn. But uh, <laughs> what they really ought to do is send Amazon a Christmas card 
because thank you, Amazon, for building out your own logistics network. Can you imagine if Amazon had not done that, the volume they'd be having to do? There's no way they would have these 90-plus percent uh, on-time ratings at this stage with COVID going on. But yes, as Seema alluded to, I, I think for all of them, including Amazon, there's a question of how they're going to step this up for the new reality of people uh, looking for more ways to get their goods from one place to another. We just had Target on earlier talking about shipped um, and lots of retailers, uh, lots of logistics companies are going to have to figure out new strategies. Yeah, no, that was interesting. As she said, you know, people are, it's not just groceries this year. Obviously, they're ordering everything now. All right, let's talk some Apple. Shares are up 4% today. This on reports that they are seeing a surge in demand for the first ever 5G iPhones. This is according to Nikkei, that the tech giant is planning to produce up to 96 million units for the first half of next year. It's a 30% increase from the same time this year. And again, Apple shares up 4% today, up 125% from March. They're just about 8% below September's all-time high. Uh, John, it's been an amazing run, but how much of this 30% surge is already priced in? I would have thought all of it, but then the shares are up 4% on the reports. So. Well, don't look at Apple for this because people get it wrong all the time trying to figure out based on you know, these rumors about what's being produced, what it means for Apple stock. This is really good news for the carriers who are building out 5G networks because that means it's likely more people who are going to have 5G-enabled devices in their hands, whether they end up getting these Apple devices at the high end or it's just indicative of demand overall for 5G. So think about uh, the carriers, think about the streamers, all of those companies that are going to be looking to either get content to people or charge people for the capacity, uh, having iPhones out there, more iPhones out there is going to be good news. What do you guys think about so, the uh, appeal, Bob, of 5G overall? I, I think it's there and people believe it's coming. I, it's one of those things that's always a little bit further off on the horizon and we, it keeps getting closer and closer eventually. So, so here's why I think the story is important. This is the bull reopening story with a particular company. So why is the S&P trading for 22 times forward earnings? It's really expensive, the stock market right now, because the bulls have convinced everybody that we're going to have this glorious reopening in the first in the second quarter, uh, beginning of the second quarter of 2021. And that it's happening because we're going to see a dramatic expansion of new orders because all of this pent up demand is going to happen. And they're going to point to Apple and they're going to say, you see, aha, here's number one example of why we should be optimistic about the stock market. Now, of course, Apple is really, and John knows this, Apple's pricey, 32, 33 times forward earnings. But the bulls keep saying, ah, yep. don't worry, it keeps going to get better. The numbers are going to keep getting better. So here's the bull story for you. The Apple Bulls also sound like they're from Brooklyn. I mean, it's just amazing, uh, the coincidence. Uh, let's talk about shares of Snowflake, which are lower today as the company's lockup period expires. This gives insiders the first chance to cash out since Snowflake went public three months ago in the largest ever software IPO. It was a monster. The stock is down 20% from last week. So, Bob, the question is, what is this signal about other companies with lockup expirations on the way? Everybody from Lemonade at the end of the month uh, to Spin Forward talking about Airbnb and DoorDash. I mean, this is a big sell-off for right. Snow. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'm reluctant to obviously say this is all due to the lockup expiring. But remember, they had a big move up. They had their earnings out, and they went up to like 420. Uh, and it's been essentially straight down in the last seven or eight days since that anticipation of the lockup expiring. So this is a fairly significant amount. 11 million shares free to be sold today. The floats 
tradable floats 28 million, so it's, it's not an insignificant number. There's a bunch of these lockups occurring, and the reason it's important is there's been so many IPOs, and they've done so well recently that the ones that are coming up have fairly significant lockups. I mean, a lot of stock is going to become available in the next few weeks, so I see a big one for Albertsons coming up. Uh, I see a big one for Accolade. I see a big one for Lemonade. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean the stock prices are going to go down, but there's going to be an awful lot of new stock available that wasn't available before uh, for insiders to sell and the public to buy in general. So just keep that in mind that, that this is something people need to be aware about, particularly when you had a price yeah. run-ups like we have seen and in Kelly, the last few months. And Kelly, with a company like Airbnb, prior to going public, it was the oldest private company. It was founded in 2008, so you got to wonder, all those people, employees who just waited for so long, and now with those lockup expirations coming up, you wonder if they're going to want to want to sell out. And you are seeing the stock move lower today for other reasons after that very hot IPO. But I think those dates will be crucial to watch for this specific company. Right. And John, I thought you guys were having a great discussion about what's going on with the IPO market you know, earlier today. And all of these questions, like with Leslie's reporting about the delays in Roblox and some of these IPOs where they're thinking we want to get our employees the best deal. And, and everyone's kind of looking for what's the right way to play the, this game and play it all out. <laughs> CEOs, I think, get nervous around this volatility. I, I still remember uh, standing with the CEO and founder of Zoom on their IPO day, and he was worried about you know how high the stock was getting. I, I guess he's given up that kind of worry at this point, based on the demand that they've seen and, and the and the global circumstances. But I, I'm not really sure if it's so much about getting employees the right price or if they just really want stability. They don't want uh, going public to be a distraction and, and to worry about, yeah, boy, they had a big pop, but now look how much they're down. They'd rather things just be steady in a lot of cases. But hey, investors have a different idea. No, that's a fair point. And again, we're watching shares of Airbnb and DoorDash, which are well below the price they hit the street on last week uh, for all the, these different uh, headwinds. Finally, in its coverage initiation note today, Truist called Carvana a shiny new model that's speeding past competition. They're giving it a buy rating. Remember, this is one of the best performers of the year. A price target of $300 is about 12% upside. Carvana is already trading above its record close, and it's up ninefold since its March low of $29 a share. This has been such a monster. And, Bob, what's interesting to me is also the business models that they're doing here, the same way that Zillow is trying this model of, of buying your house directly right. to cut out uh, the traditional real estate process. Carvana is saying, we'll come buy your used car. And that's a plank of this story as well. Yeah, and this is why... The disruptive technology crowd loves it. This is an ETF darling. It's in all the right disruptive technology ETFs, the online retail ETFs, and it gets a lot of buying from that because it, millennials and ETF investors love buying thematic, and they love disruptive tech. They love online retail, anything like that, and Carvana is in all of these. So this is part of the reason the stock has done so well. Can I be a little curmudgeonly and point out, while the analysts love it, it's not making any money. It's going to lose more than $2 again this year. It's going to still lose money into the near future. So if people think, you know, you're just being contrarian when you point this fact out, but at some point, it's, it's definitely going to matter. They're still losing significant amounts of money. 
Seema? I'll be a little curmudgeonly as well, as Bob just said, and say there are still a lot of people out there. I know my parents who actually enjoy the experience of going to a dealership, getting to know the agent, test driving a car. So I know Carvana has played a specific role here in what? shifting a lot of a lot of Americans to, to owning a car and making it much more seamless, especially if you've migrated from cities to suburbs. Um, but I think there's still a lot of people who would say they, they enjoy the other experience, the traditional experience. Wait, Seema, did you just say your parents enjoy going to the car dealer to yeah, buy a car? Yeah, do, do yours not? I mean, they love, like, sort of just feeling it out. They want to feel the car, <laughs> go back again, and test out all the little features. I mean, they want to really experience the car before buying one, unlike, unlike our, us millennials. I think that that's a fair point, John. I mean, it's not that I don't want to experience it first, but I, I don't like the process. It, I, it, I hate it. I could do without it. But, Bob, I think that would have been a good point for the New York accent to come back when you were talking about... The car dealers. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have you back. I'll channel my inner Gilbert Gottfried again, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll chat about that. <laughs> Thank you all today, John Fort, Seema Modi, and Bob Bassani, right. for this edition of Rapid okay. Fire. Still ahead, from dentists to meat plant processors, governors are working out which essential workers will be given access to the next round of vaccines. We'll look at how the rankings are being worked out and how big a role lobbyists are playing next. Don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. The Exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back. State governors have to decide who gets the next round of vaccine doses, and it set off a race between food workers, dentists, teachers, and more. Robert Frank is here with those details. Robert? Well, Kelly, from farm workers to food workers, flight attendants, and even financial exchange traders, workers around the country right now lobbying to be included in that next round of vaccines known as Group 1B. Now, it's up to the states, the governors and the health departments, to decide which essential occupations will get the vaccines after this first round of medical workers and first responders. So teachers, child care providers, mass transit workers, pharmacists, grocery store workers, they're all the top of the list for most states in that 1B group. But Uber drivers, taxi drivers, they say they should also get early doses since they're essential for transporting medical staff and patients. You've got pilots and flight attendants making similar arguments. Now, executives from meat processing companies like Cargill, Smithfield, and Purdue saying their workers should also get vaccines to secure our food supply. Now, you've got sanitation workers saying, well, someone needs to clean up the garbage. You've got truckers saying they're needed for supply chains. Dentists and pharmacists saying they should be included because they are medical workers. Now, bank tellers, they're likely going to get early vaccines since they face the public. But in New York and Illinois, you also have financial exchange staff traders ahead of the broader population saying they're needed to keep all of our financial markets functioning, and that is critical infrastructure. So it's really here how essential is essential and how do you decide based on these categories, Kelly? Right. And even for the industries that do get it, they clearly won't have enough doses for everybody. So then they will have to decide which of the workers get it first and that sort of thing. Uh, it's fascinating the yeah, chain reaction it sets off. Robert, thanks so much, uh, Robert Frank. That does it for the exchange today. But up next on Power Lunch, the retail ETF, the XRT, is up about 12 percent over the past month. We're going to look at the retailers whose fates could rest on this holiday season for better or worse. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.